Hi, this is Stacy the Baby Maker Roberts, and I would like to invite you to join me this year in an industry first. I have put together more than a decade of my clinical experience into developing the first online mentoring program that deals with the ever-growing area of natural fertility. My Baby Maker Network Mentoring Program is an online interactive program where you will learn how to address all aspects of fertility issues. You will learn how to successfully navigate the most challenging cases and walk away with the knowledge that every specialist in the area of natural fertility must possess in order to feel confident and competent in the clinical setting. If you are ready to be a part of an atmosphere that helps you build your practice while helping couples build their family, I look forward to getting to know you in the Baby Maker Mentoring Program. A special seminar price will be offered in February at the Going From Unexplained to Pregnant event, and the program itself will launch in March. Please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab for more information and to register. FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook and joining me in the studio today is Belinda Reynolds who's a dietitian with over 15 years experience in the integrative medicine industry. She's an acclaimed senior educator with Bioceuticals who regularly presents to audiences throughout Australia and New Zealand and she's known for her practical and easy style bringing complex biochemical processes into an easily digestible format with practical clinical applications of Welcome Bell. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. Belinda, today we're going to be discussing some highly topical issues such as methylation, histamine, SNPs and pyrroles. And we're going to try and shed some light as to the practicalities of treating patients with these disorders because I think people can get caught up in compounds rather than what happens in the body. So, Belinda, firstly, can you take me through just what are we dealing with here with regards to that thing called methylation? So methylation in itself is a huge area. Mm. Um, and I think what people have become very focused on at the moment is the MTHFR SNP or the single nucleotide polymorphism on mm. the gene that encodes for the MTHFR enzyme. And as a result, where developing a, a huge concern over certain supplements. Um, people are moving away from certain things and believing that they're dangerous when potentially that's not so much the case. Um, and we're also, I think, at times losing sight of the big picture. I think that looking at the SNP is certainly warranted and we definitely need to take it into account when we're looking at our patients. But we need to look beyond this and also analyse the patient to determine how much the presence of that SNP is actually impacting their health mm. uh, and then treat accordingly. Yeah. I think you just you said a crucial thing there and that was the MTHFR is an enzyme and the whole problem is that people have a gene mutation mm -hmm. whereby this enzyme doesn't work. 
and I think people get caught up on the compounds rather than the enzymes. Yeah, I think I think that does happen. And there's a, an idea that if you do have the MTHFR SNP that you're not producing any of the enzyme at all, which isn't actually the case. There's just simply a reduced expression yeah. of that enzyme. So uh, what we need to do is really take a step back and, and have a, a look at what else is going on. Yeah. So rather than simply just test for the MTHFR SNP, it's really important to look also at factors that can be impacted by this. So look at homocysteine levels. We know that the function of the MTHFR enzyme is to reduce 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate to the active form of folate, which is 5-MTHF. Mm. Uh, the 5-MTHF acts as a methyl donor, donating a methyl group to homocysteine to convert it to methionine. And that then, as a result, keeps homocysteine levels under control. Uh, if we have an MTHFR SNP and therefore a reduced functioning of that enzyme, we can get lower than ideal levels of that active folate and as a result, homocysteine can accumulate. Up, yeah. So, yeah, so measuring homocysteine can be a good indication of how significantly someone is being impacted by the presence of that gene SNP in their body. However, if the homocysteine is identified to be elevated, we need to also be mindful of the fact that the MTHFR SNP isn't the only thing which could be contributing mm. to that homocysteine elevation. Yeah. Um, there's an enzyme which catalyzes the donation of the methyl group from 5-MTHF to the homocysteine and that enzyme is methionine synthase and it's dependent on the presence of methyl B12. Yeah. So we could have a methyl B12 deficiency, which is actually in fact what is impacting the, the homocysteine levels. So we really do uh, need to be looking at a variety of different factors, not getting bogged down in one individual thing. I think the important thing for our listeners to try and conceptualise is that there's a lot of circular um, patterns here, if we like, um, circular enzyme systems. And I say circular to conceptualise it, right? Mm. And what happens is these circles are integrated in a way that they're sort of like, if you can imagine, cogs of mm -hmm. a watch or a machine yep. running together to turn some ha greater hand, some greater movement, some greater machine. So these intertwine, these work together. It's not one entity. No. It's very often all of the entities, and although you might have a problem with one or more of these enzymes, w these nutrients are still, as Bob Buer says famously, they're biological spare parts. Mm. And I think this is one of the premises of nutritional medicine is using these biological spare parts to, at wilds, we need to bluster our way through and at other wilds we need to really ease back if there's an issue there. Mm. Because some people can say, oh, I'll just use methyl tetrahydrofolate, well, that can still cause a problem if your cogs aren't working. Is mm. that right? Yeah. So I think there's definitely the the idea, and it's quite correct in, in most situations, that uh, MTHF, which is the actual active form of folate, is the best thing to use for people with an MTHFR SNP. And this makes total sense yeah. because what you're putting into the body is a purely active form and you're bypassing the need for the MTHFR enzyme in one step. Yeah. So what you have there is active folate, which is able to donate its methyl group onto homocysteine. However, 
once the MTHF has donated its methyl group to the homocysteine to yield methionine, you have tetrahydrofolate, which then is required to be remethylated to form the 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate, which then needs to be reduced again by the MTHFR enzyme before it can become MTHF uh, to ultimately go through that process again. So it's um, really important that we're aware that although, yes, you are putting the active form of folate into the body, it's only able to perform its functions of donating a methyl group once and then you're back at the beginning again and it becomes uh, a similar form to that which your other forms of folate uh, are similar to. So we need to be ensuring that we're supporting all aspects of that folate cycle, not simply just putting in the, the active form of folate. But when we look at comparing folic acid to folinic acid to MTHF, I think it's definitely correct that MTHF is the superior form, Hmm. um, but we also need to be aware of the fact that it's not the be-all and end-all, and we need to be considering, is there enough B12, and do we need to supplement with the the methyl B12 if there's a a gut issue going on, which is impacting someone's ability to um, absorb their B12 from their diet? Uh, Do we need to look at uh, other nutrient levels? So, for example, uh, vitamin B6 is important for uh, the methylation of tetrahydrofolate to yield the 5,10-methylene tetrahydrofolate. Uh, We also need to ensure that we have sufficient levels of vitamin B2 because MTHFR function is reliant on vitamin B2. So if we're ensuring that there's a good nutritional status. Overall, Hmm. we're going to assist that folate cycle uh, in its ability to continue to turn. And it's interesting when you mentioned we really need to look at enzymes uh, because so many enzymes in the body rely on sufficient zinc, uh, sufficient magnesium, uh, B6, Mm -hmm. also uh, selenium. So we need to make sure that all of those essential cofactors are available so that our enzymes are functioning. We need to make sure that we don't have a buildup of uh, potentially toxic heavy metals in the body, which can push uh, cofactors like zinc out, out of their enzyme That's right. uh, and replace them, like binding to the thiol group in that enzyme and efficiently destroying the functioning of that enzyme. So mercury and copper, it's some cadmium. really, yeah, cadmium are some really good examples of that. So uh, we when we're looking at somebody who appears to have issues with their methylation, who has elevations in homocysteine, uh, are expressing symptoms of this undermethylation or elevated histamine uh, type mood disorders or, or other functional problems, we need to not just be looking at the one nutrient, although yes, you'll likely get a very good improvement in their symptoms with that nutrient. But if we're going to really look at addressing their health Overall, uh, we need to be addressing multiple factors which could be uh, contributing to their their ill health. So let's. Uh, I want to take this to a, a population sort of arena, if you like, um, and concentrating on three issues that are commonly associate, associated with folate problems. Mm-hmm. And first one is um, cardiovascular disease with homocysteine. Second one is the the poster child, if you like, of folate or folic acid supplementation, and that's protection against neural tube 
Mm-hmm. defects. The other one is a very controversial one, and that's a, a potentially raised incidence in cancers, mm. now, especially bowel cancer. Very controversial and not proven, um, and not in all studies. Otherwise, they would cease folic supplementation mm. overnight. So the first one is cardiovascular disease. And there was a very good study... Um, I think it was around about 2005, 2006, that showed in somebody who has um, stable angina, forgive me if this is wrong, I'm trying to remember, but in somebody who has pre-existing cardiovascular disease, lowering the homocysteine is not going to help them. Mm. And the basic analogy for that is similarly, if you already have somebody with a cleft palate, giving them folic acid is not going to get rid of that cleft palate. Mm. The damage is done. The horse has bolted. So in, in that instance where there's already pre-existing disease, homocysteine becomes a marker that something is wrong rather than a target for somebody to head to lowering. It's not going to help them. Mm-hmm. Um, the cleft palate issue, was, uh, getting back onto that, is protection, not treatment. That's an obvious one. Mm-hmm. But then moving over from that is the um, wholesale supplementation at least in Australia, certain other countries as well, with all breads being um, fortified with folic acid except organic breads. And then there was a a couple of controversial studies showing that there might be an increased risk of cancer. But if that was so glaringly obvious, we wouldn't be doing it. Mm. So is it only in those subpopulations who have a gene SNP? And is it like um, if if p- people are purporting that at minimum thirty percent of the population's got a gene SNP, it can't be thirty percent of the population that's getting cancers. Mm. So how big is that issue? Yeah, I, th- I think it's something that we still don't completely understand. Uh, when you look around at the evidence that's there, there's a lot of conflicting evidence. There's so many studies which support the safety and the benefit of folic acid. Um, When we did start fortifying foods with folic acid, we did see a reduction in the incidence of spinal tube defects, and that was a really positive outcome. What we're starting to see now, though, however, is the potential that overconsumption of these foods together with supplementation of uh, folic acid is potentially contributing to some imbalances in the system. And I guess it's that whole idea that too much of a good thing isn't necessarily a good thing. On on its own. (laughs) Yeah, Mm. yeah. So it's an example of one of those things where we've uh, looked at one nutrient and uh, decided that that's going to solve our problem and we've suddenly just started fortifying foods and supplementing people with that one nutrient rather than paying attention to what's going on as a whole. And I think when we've looked at studies that show a greater incidence of certain conditions based on a high intake of foods that are fortified with folic acid, what really is the issue there? Is it the folic acid in itself or is it the types of foods that they're consuming. The the foods that are rich in folic acid are generally highly processed, often stripped of their nutritional value, and they're taking up space in the diet, which may otherwise be filled with natural uh, folate-rich foods. So folic acid is synthetic. There's no folic acid which exists naturally in our food sources. So that's an it's an artificial form of folate which has been added into our food supply. And potentially 
there's the the theory that it's competing for uptake into the cells uh, against the natural folates that do exist in our food and are more easily uh, utilised. So I think again we need to take a step back and look at that that big picture yep. and and understand what really is the problem. Is it the consumption of the wrong types of foods? Mm, right. Is it too much of one particular nutrient without us providing all of the other nutrients which support its function in the body and and keep those cogs turning. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's, it's something that we there's more research that needs to be done. We need to gain a better understanding of what is happening. But what we really need to do right now is again look at that big big picture and get back to the very basics. Talking on that point of you know, how do we metabolise homocysteine? How do we affect its level? Uh, there was a dose-ranging study done in 2005. Mm -hmm. Now, the author is, actually, it's a group, the Homocysteine Lowering Trialists Collaboration, and it's called The Dose-Dependent Effects of Folic Acid on Blood Concentrations of Homocysteine, a meta-analysis of the randomised trials. And I remember they talked about in there that... Um, Adding B12 in there only gave, you know, a, a, like a 3% additive effect. Mm -hmm. So it was basically folic acid and B6 that had the major effects. And if you think about the COGS, mm -hmm. it sort of makes sense and sort of sort of doesn't. You think, yeah. hmm, how so come I, B12 isn't <laughs> having more of an effect? So B, B6 is actually involved in a, a few different steps there. So um, not only is it involved in the uh, assisting in the activation of folate, um, but it's also involved in the transsulfuration pathway as well. So and it that's helps. what gets rid of it, the the compounds, if you like, out of the cycle mm. and helps it to actually be turned into a quote-unquote antioxidant, mm. glutathione. Yeah. Yeah. So, so and then and serine plays a, serine an important well. role there too. So, um, yeah, I guess it's a matter of what that population were more deficient in too. I guess they could have been a population who were more deficient in B6 than they were in B12. Uh, but... Yeah, and it can depend on in at, at how many different points that particular nutrient is essential for the control of homocysteine. But if you looked at a another parameter, you may have, you may have found a more significant improvement after the addition of the B12. So it probably depends on what you're looking at and the the population. That'd be a very interesting thing for our listeners to give us some feedback on if they have any uh, information on maybe some trials that were done on certain. Uh, subpopulations with with certain SNPs, mm -hmm. uh, maybe they could um, follow up FX Medicine on Twitter or Facebook, or indeed the FX Medicine page, and give us some feedback or, or enlighten our other practitioners with mm. that research. That'd, yeah, be, that'd be great. Yeah, for sure. So, what about histamine? Now, this is something that really <laughs> gets me. <laughs> I am not up with this. I'm still learning as well. <laughs> Are we all? But <laughs> please teach me. <laughs> Let's go. Um, so, I mean, histamine we generally think of to be something that's released from mast cells in response to uh, an allergic type reaction. But um, a lesser known fact, um, to, to some people at least, is that, is that it's a, it's a neurotransmitter, and yeah. it it plays a a number of different roles in. Um, our sense of alertness and our arousal and even our sensation of pain. And what can happen is that if we have issues in the functioning of our methylation cycles, that can lead to changes in histamine levels. So methyl groups, are in, or SAM-E, 
is involved in the metabolism of histamine. So if we have, uh, say, an MTHFR SNP or for some reason we have uh, an issue of undermethylation where homocysteine is accumulating due to the body's inability to convert that homocysteine to methionine, which would then, via a number of different steps, be converted to SAMe, which would go on to assist with histamine metabolism, uh, that will lead to a histamine accumulation. And it can contribute to a variety of different um, mental concerns uh, and, other, and other symptoms as well. Um, but we also need to be mindful of the fact too that there are other enzymes involved in histamine metabolism, such as the DAO enzyme or diamine oxidase. So it's another one of those things where if people observe uh, an elevation in histamine, mm. they may automatically assume it's an undermethylation issue, um, but that may not be the case. We need to consider what else might be going on for that individual. Of course, we also need to consider the, the mast cell immune dysfunction side of things. Uh, and on the, the flip side of that, I guess, too often people will see the MTHFR SNP and make an assumption that someone will be high in histamine uh, because they're not uh, producing sufficient active folate and therefore there'll, there'll be the assumption that we have a deficiency of SAMe and therefore an accumulation of histamine. But it is worth actually checking that because if what can happen is that in within any individual we can have thousands of different SNPs on different genes encoding yep. for different enzymes. And yes, someone may have an MTHFR SNP, but they may also have a variety of different SNPs on enzymes involved in the utilisation of SAMe. For example, uh, the conversion of SAMe to creatine. Yep. Uh, I learned this from a Dr. Bill Walsh seminar, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. um, and what he was discussing was the fact that there, there then is a push and pull of between the SNPs. So we've got an issue where, yes, there's a something which would suggest an undermethylation issue on, on one side, yeah. um, but there's a number of other SNPs which are actually contributing to potential issues with overmethylation on the ah. other side. So someone could have the MTHFR SNP but still be an overmethylator because what SAMe that is being produced isn't being efficiently utilised and is accumulating and contributing to different problems such as uh, the over metabolism of histamine, which causes that to drop, but then you're actually getting a depletion of or a reduced production of creatine, for example. Right. So um, there's a broad variety of different responses you can get based on what combination of SNPs you have occurring in your body. On the other hand, if you were to only look at histamine mm. and you saw that histamine was low, you may think, oh, that person's an overmethylator. I better not give them any SAMe or yep. I better not give them any methylfolate uh, because that could create a problem. But copper is also involved in histamine metabolism. So it could be a copper excess which is contributing to that low level of histamine. And we know copper excess to be a common culprit in a lot of mood and anxiety uh, type concerns, mm. um, COP can actually bind to the GABA receptor and act as an antagonist there. Um, that's why providing lots of zinc is great because it can displace copper from that receptor um, and enhance GABA functioning. Uh, the copper also is involved in the conversion of dopamine to noradrenaline and 
and adrenaline. So it can lead to anxiety type issues there as well. So uh, it's it's important that we're, again, considering all potential aspects. So if someone has histamine issues, yes, consider MTHFR as a culprit, but also consider other aspects of methylation, consider certain toxicities, consider what's going on the, in the immune system and what other potential SNPs are sort of interacting with that issue. You know, one of the, one of the things I, I, I'm just thinking when you were saying all of this, I'm just thinking two things. First one is, does that lead us? to either over test, you know, test for copper, test for all the SNPs in the body, test for this, and where does that clinically lead you? Or do you just throw up your hands and do nothing, <laughs> no testing, and, and do what we always did, and that was you treat responsibly? Yeah. I what I think is interesting as well is that looking at high histamine foods, you mm. know, and try, I'm trying to in my mind, trying to draw a picture with this folic acid supplementation cancer thing. And I'm just wondering, wouldn't it be interesting if anybody out there has looked at high hit or histamine rich foods like fermented beverages, uh, wine, champagne, beer, cheeses, cheeses, fermented foods, even sauerkraut, Mm -hmm. uh, vinegar, those people that might have an adverse reaction to vinegar, a real adverse, not just, you know, the the stifling reaction of the taste, but <laughs> but uh, something like soy sauce gives somebody a really truly adverse reaction. Cured meats, the bacon, the things, and then I'm not going to lead into it now, but I'm just going to mention it. When you're talking about these cured meats, bacon, salami, pepperoni, luncheon meats, hot dogs have just been recently been implicated as the worst foods for an increase or the worst uh, meats for an increase in cancer. Mm. Hmm. Mm. Are we then talking about an inability to not just metabolise folate but over-dose, um, if you like, on histamine mm. and we can't use it? Where does that lead us all? So what's your opinion of how to test and what are appropriate tests and then where do you lead from that? Where do you go from that? Look, I, th- I think it, it's very – it's an individual thing. It's very – uh, much determined by the patient that you're presented with, uh, their situation, what they're able to to spend on on testing. I think that uh, testing certainly does play a really important role because it it can help to confirm your suspicions. Uh, I've often heard Beth Bundy make mention of the fact that people love to see themselves in colour um, and you often get a better a buy-in from the patient and, yep. and better compliance when they've actually seen on paper that this is what is happening with them. Um, but it also can give you a baseline too so that you can remeasure after a number of months and show the patient what, what they've achieved by working well with you. But you're not um, going to be changing a SNP. Sorry. So, so... that's so the SNP, that's a, a separate <laughs> thing. So the SNP won't change, but if you do take a measurement of homocysteine or whole blood histamine or look at folate levels and B12 levels, mm. um, those things can certainly uh, change for the better with, with a good treatment type program. I think in all of this, it's in, you know, we, we know that medicine is going to be genomically testing things. Mm. They already are for certain things like tamoxifen. I've banged on about this heaps. Mm. There's certain other things um, where there certain other SNPs where they're looking at mainly Cype enzyme interactions where they're looking at personalised medicine for drugs. That's it. That's mm-hmm. going to be a fact in medicine. And so I think it can give any practitioner an idea of what is there. 
then you have to take, okay, what's going to be my treatment and my management of that? And how am I going to measure that objectively mm. now as a baseline and in the future to address change? Yes. And I think to take it on just as one part of your uh, process of diagnosis and determining what sort of intervention, uh, because how the patient is presenting is one of the, the best ways to really give an indication of what needs to be addressed and uh, simply talking with them and finding out what uh, issues are the biggest concern for them. It can help give you an idea of uh, what aspect of their health that you need to prioritise. Um, but it's also important too that people themselves don't get fearful of seeing these genetic snips that they have. Uh, I think people think, yeah. I have MTHFR, I'm going to get cancers, uh, I'm at a greater risk of all of these terrible diseases. And uh, it's it's important that we're also educating the patients well to help them understand that just this is just giving us an indication of how best to proceed with your particular case. And, yeah. uh, everyone has different SNPs within their body that can potentially increase their risk of, of different illnesses. But the, the most important things is the epigenetic factors and what our diet and our, our lifestyle is doing to influence the expression of different genes in our body. So uh, it's important that we're focusing more on uh, the, the dietary, the, the intervention, the lifestyle uh, changes more so than getting bogged down and fearful of the presence of any particular gene issue. Bill, I've got to say you're awesome. Thank you so much for taking all of our listeners through that because you really clear so much up for me. Yeah, and um, it's an area that's, you know, our knowledge is growing still. So I know that I definitely have more learning to do. I think we all do. We all um, do. <laughs> but it's definitely an interesting topic <laughs> to discuss. I've often said anybody who thinks they know everything about a subject, please hang up your, sh up your shingle and go and do something else. You've <laughs> yeah. just turned arrogant. <laughs> the whole, this all is changing. Yeah. We're learning more and more as each day. Let's go on to another topical point, and that is pyrroles. Mm -hmm. And this ties into this methylation issue, but it's got some particular attributes on its own. What are we talking about here? Yeah, so with, with pyrroles, there's, again, this is another area where there's limited evidence. Uh, a lot of what we know is based on sort of anecdotal evidence or, or research which has been done by practitioners uh, who, who specialise in the field. So uh, what I'll be discussing is based on their findings that I've learnt from watching seminars, but also from reading what papers there are available. Uh, but what it seems is that what uh, pyrroles or hydroxyhemopyrrolin uh, is something which is produced by the body uh, naturally, but due to potentially a gene SNP or due to a lot of oxidative stress in the body, there's a greater production of that. Mm. It is normally released uh, within the bile into the gut. If you have the presence of leaky gut or just due to normal processes of recirculation, um, those pyrroles or the HPL uh, enters into the bloodstream. It's quite efficiently excreted by the kidneys. So the, the pyrroles themselves don't really create a huge issue. The problems associated with high pyrroles and the conditions which tend to stem from it uh, occur due to the fact that the pyrroles in the blood or in the body bind zinc and vitamin B6. And as they're excreted via the kidneys in the urine, they're taking that zinc and that B6 with them. Therefore, the higher the pyrroles in the body, the higher the pyrroles in the urine, the greater the loss of zinc and the greater the loss of B6. 
the issue is that uh, zinc plays a, an important role in gastrointestinal integrity. So as more zinc is lost, gastrointestinal integrity uh is further diminished, you get a greater reabsorption of the pyrroles, pyrrole levels go up, excretion of the pyrroles go up, zinc loss goes up and it becomes quite a nasty self-perpetuating cycle. Mm. We know that uh, a good amount of zinc is important to protect against copper toxicity. Uh, so what you can potentially develop is elevated levels of copper, which compromise healthy GABA functioning, which result in greater production of noradrenaline and adrenaline. Uh, and low dopamine. Uh, zinc is essential then not only for protecting against that copper accumulation, but it's also an important uh, promoter of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which yep. protects our serotonergic neurons from damage and assists with neuroplasticity. So you're also contributing to a greater risk of depression and uh, cognitive de decline if this is allowed to persist over a long period of time. Uh, further to that, the, the deficiency of B6 can impact your healthy methylation, uh, but B6 is also important for healthy, healthy gather synthesis. So as you can start to understand is that what will end up happening as a result of these high pyrroles, we get a lot of uh, the potential for the development of anxious type disorders and inability to relax and calm down after a stressful event, potentially depression, potentially long-term cognitive decline. But due to the importance of zinc for the immune system, for gut integrity, uh, we can get immune dysfunction because of B6's role in uh, healthy methylation. We can get methylation problems. Uh, and down the track, that could also potentially even contribute to estrogen dominant type problems. We know that zinc deficiency uh, can contribute to elevated aromatase activity, which can lead to a greater buildup in estrogen. We often see high copper with high estrogen. Uh, and we also know that estrogen is metabolized to a degree via the methylation yep. pathways. Yep. So, and in addition to that, if we have, say, dysbiosis in the gut occurring at the same time as this pyrrole issue, you'll get a greater production of beta-glucuronidase, which is which uh, can actually cleave estrogen from its conjugate in the bowel. That combined with the leaky gut, which is commonly associated with pyrroles, sees free estrogen re-entering into the circulation. Uh, further to that, you have an increased passage of LPS, which initiate inflammation. Uh, that pushes up aromatase activity uh, and contributes to sort of systemic inflammatory issues, which activate the HPA axis, and you actually get quite and, a messy situation. And, and the, the, the normal proliferative actions of estrogen, which, as you know, if you have a, a long or prolonged... Um, non-cyclical level mm. or uh, that's probably an incorrect term, an increased um, circulating level of estrogens without getting rid of them, then you have that additive proliferative action which can lead to cancers. Mm. Hmm. So it just... Folic acid cancers. <laughs> yeah, it just... <laughs> you, you really start to see how it all interacts and uh, no matter what situation you're dealing with, you do need to consider methylation. We do need to make sure that that process is functioning properly. But um, 
MDHF, yes, is probably the best form of folate that we can give generally, and your methyl B12 is probably the best uh, form of B12 you can give. B6 is absolutely essential there as well. We can't forget B6's mm. importance. Yep. Um, you mentioned the homocysteine study earlier that B6 had a, a more significant impact on uh, returning homocysteine levels to normal than the B12 did. Uh, but we also need to consider the zinc. We need to consider our gut health. We need to ensure the absence of dysbiosis. We need to be encouraging people to take part in mindfulness and meditation and gratitude in order to try and actively pull themselves out of that sympathetic um, dominant type yeah, type state. So absolutely. It, it doesn't matter what issue you're And wasting you're of minerals. About. Yeah. Like the, rather than being esoteric ab ab about, you know, lovely feelings, I'm, I'm always thinking about it on a, on a biochemical mm. level. If you're increasing stress hormones in your body, you're weighing out minerals mm. and B vitamins yeah, with them. Yeah, and magnesium. And, yeah. yeah. So what I think is interesting, though, is looking at the Australian Bureau of Statistics, and this was for something that I did quite separate for this. Mm. I was just very interested in following this up. So this is the Australian Bureau of Statistics, ABS, um, Australian Health Survey, Usual Nutrient Intakes 2011 to 2012. And I picked out just a few graphs of zinc, B6, magnesium and iron. And iron, we know, is it's a real issue. You mm. know, around about 8% of people don't have enough iron. Usually women show up as being more deficient as men because men don't have a way, a physiological way of getting rid of iron. Um, and the only reason that women do is because they menstruate. Mm -hmm. So snapshot of iron, just because I mentioned it, is because is if you look at the graph, you see um, that it, it's an issue up until really when menstruation ceases and mm -hmm. then it's no issue. That's iron out of the way. But the big ones I see here are zinc, B6 and magnesium. Mm -hmm. And the graphs are huge. And they just have an upward trend from childhood into adulthood. More males are zinc deficient than females. More females are B6 deficient than males. But males and females are both highly deficient in magnesium. Mm. This is just a hugely disproportionate amount of people in Australia who aren't getting enough of these extremely basic components mm -hmm. that run 200, 300 enzymes in our body. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 no surprise. I then think we that, have to start back at yeah, food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we need you know? to improve our diet, and then, like as you said, address the stress, which is contributing to the the increased excretion of these uh, nutrients from Absolutely. the body. The wasting so, of them. So, yeah, it's... Um, and then you're talking about estrogens before and what's a way to get rid of estrogens is to increase fibre, which unfortunately can sometimes bind to zinc. Mm. So it's this... It's, it's, a, it's a balancing act, It's a real it? balancing mm. act, but um, we certainly need more fibre in our diet. We that, do. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So I think as a treatment type thing, we really need to be concentrating on... Starting digestion, yep. having a good, balanced, healthy diet, mm -hmm. and I disagree with the standard Australian diet, but a healthy diet mm -hmm. with loads of nutrient-dense, calorie-poor, plant-based foods, mm -hmm. less red meat. Mm -hmm. What else? We also, I think we need to really focus on the, the health of the, the microbiome, uh, so probiotics are really important there. Uh, we haven't even touched the the sides 
or no. uh, gotten close to Touch what we... Touch the sides? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, pun. <laughs> Microbiota bowel. Yeah. Touch the sides. Okay. <laughs> Uh, we we haven't even um, gotten a, a, the, a full understanding of what no. these these microbes can do for our health, and so it's really important that we're ensuring that that microbial diversity, uh, and we also need to consider supplementing where it's necessary. I think we uh, it would be great if we could get all of our nutrients from our diet. The reality is most people aren't very compliant mm. with their diet. Our the the sources of uh, foods that we have available to us are often deplete of a lot of different nutrients that that are very essential for us. And um, in a, in a lot of cases, supplementation can be necessary yeah, when people are presenting with these real health issues, which are impacting the quality of their life. So, if we're focusing on the pyrroles, that the gut healing, the fibre, the good diet, uh, the probiotics, uh, but also some zinc and B six, and also uh, magnesium mm. supplementation is important. Consider the potential presence of high copper. You may need to help turn up detoxification processes. And it is really important that we're addressing uh, that sympathetic dominance as well and helping people to calm down and, and relax and uh, find some coping mechanisms that can help calm them down. Because when we are in a sympathetic state and when we're adrenally uh overworked, that actually turns down our detoxification processes. Yep, so our cellular it's part of digestion. Yeah. Our yeah, our normal detoxification and antioxidant um, defense mechanisms that our cells are equipped with simply aren't functioning. Mm. We're trying to get away enough. from yeah. the lion. Yes, yeah, yeah. We're, <laughs> we're running away from those lions as opposed to focusing on detoxification. So um I think definitely zinc, magnesium, B six and then considering detox, addressing stress, and uh, just also taking a step back and looking at what other um, approaches are required for that particular individual's uh, current state of health. Belinda Reynolds, fantastic practical aspects that you bring to treating what can ostensibly seem over-complicated mm. and just overwhelming to many practitioners. And I do totally agree with you that we really are at the tip of the iceberg mm. with regards to, you know, gene snips and, and where we have to go with methylation and what it means and to, to bring about a change in patients' health. And I urge practitioners, yes, you know, if you're interested in it and, and certainly if you think there's a clinical need, do a, a gene test where mm. it's appropriate. But I think we also have to fundamentally be looking at a basement and a treatment measure of some objective parameter mm -hmm. that we can say my treatment definitely worked yes to improve the health of the patient mm, I agree. so thank you once again for taking us through that thanks so much for having me it's great to be here again this is fx medicine and i'm andrew whitfield cook as the functional approach to medicine continues to evolve we are now witnessing the emergence of a powerful systems-orientated model capable of addressing the healthcare needs of the 21st century. In April 2016, Bioceuticals will be holding the fourth Bioceuticals Research Symposium to provide healthcare professionals with leading, cutting-edge research highlighting the future of integrative and functional medicine. We've chosen the world's leading functional medicine experts to show you how they integrate the explosion of research with the latest in genetic science, nutrition, and metabolic medicine. 
For more information, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your practice of natural medicine.